1: Heard the call to build your small business? Make it happen with a .NET domain name, the place for dreamers for 30 years and counting. Visit keepdreamingup.net for tips and advice, whether you're just getting started or looking to grow. That's (laughs) keepdreamingup.net.
2: So we're so excited to have John Sides, who writes for the Monkey Cage blog at The Washington Post. But you wear many hats, John. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the various hats that you wear and your background?
1: Well, I'm a political scientist and a professor in the department here at George Washington University. Um, And I study elections and campaigns and public opinion. Uh, In addition to that, I helped to run The Monkey Cage, which is uh, a site about politics and political science, where we try to use political science to illuminate political events of the day.
0: Why is it called the Monkey Cage blog? I have to ask. Oh, that was going to be my question. Good.
1: (laughs) Sure. Um, When we started it in 2007, back when we were just a tiny independent blog, we chose it because of a quote from the writer H.L. Mencken, who said that democracy is the art of running the circus from the monkey cage. And so we thought that might be a little bit more of a catchy name than a lot of the other boring things we could come up with that involved the word politics or professors or political science or whatever else we could think about.
2: Oh, that's good. We love it. Well, that's between great. you
0: guys and SurveyMonkey, I feel like primates are very hot in the political science and survey world these days. <laughs> totally. I
1: think, I think between, between us and SurveyMonkey, we're... I think we're trying to show that uh, something with the, the name monkey and it can actually be relatively serious. I'm not sure if we're succeeding yet. I, I've
0: been doing the same thing with selfies, so I, I've, I, am a, I, I'm a shared. I share your plight. <laughs> so sure. free,
2: free, idea. Have some sort of selfie monkey, and you will be <laughs> You will be <laughs> oh, a zillionaire. God. The end. Interview over. Let's let's go run out and have wild riches. Um so well, okay well so that's good background and so the monkey cage blog lives independently from the articles we see regularly at the Washington Post though as well correct
1: Well we our old site lives independently um, at the monkeycage.org and um we we live semi independently from the post in the sense that um, we do most of our own content uh, selection editing um in short, they don't really uh, bear any blame or responsibility for the kinds of uh, st- stuff that we publish. Um, but the, the arrangement that we have with them is just a really nice one, where um, we can continue to do what we do um, without some of the pressures that I think you would get if you know you actually had to be um, directly part of a larger news organization. Um, at the same time, we get a huge platform. And they're an excellent brand to help to promote our own content. And it's really been, dare I say, a game changer for the the sort of size of the audience that we have and for the, the breadth of people that read it.
0: Yeah, it's been so interesting watching the academic world of political science become much more kind of mainstream or consumable or accessible to people who do not have... Uh, the ability to log into JSTOR. Uh, so tell us a little bit about sort of how you got started in political science and what you have seen in terms of the <clears throat> the evolution of who is consuming or interested in this stuff. H- how has that gone over the course of your career to now? You're writing stuff that, that go, winds up at the Washington Post and sort of shapes part of the narrative of, of what people think about this race.
1: So when we started the monkey cage in 2007, our feeling was that political scientists were underrepresented um, as public intellectuals in the the broader blogosphere at that time. You saw a lot of really prominent economists blogging. I mean, probably the most prominent being Paul Krugman um, because of his uh, platform at the New York Times. And I think we felt like the political science community just didn't have a similar outlet. And more generally, we were oftentimes uh, dismayed or disgruntled by some of the news coverage of politics that we saw that we felt really didn't reflect the findings of political science research and oftentimes got things wrong. So we stepped in, I think, to try to provide a perspective that would, um, that would use political science and and try to take away some of the impenetrable jargon and statistics and everything and make it seem, um, accessible and relevant to what's going on. I think we were aided in that, um, Task by, uh, you know, a different generation, uh, maybe, of, of political writers and reporters who were interested in numbers, interested in data, interested in, in what political science had to say. And I think, you know, the short list of those people are the usual suspects, people like Nate Silver and Ezra Klein and others. And I think for, for our purposes, they were enormous force multipliers, people that could not only read us and link to us, but in some sense baked political science into their their way of thinking about politics and I think showed that you could you could do good political writing that's interesting and thoughtful um but also at the same time, really well informed by um, what academic political scientists have found.
0: Now, one of the things you just mentioned is that, you know, oftentimes when people be covering politics, they weren't necessarily, uh, you know, coming from a knowledge of the literature about how this stuff works. Uh, What are some of the biggest sort of misconceptions or things that are accepted as conventional wisdom that you'll see pundits or political reporters talk about Uh, that drive you crazy because, you know, there's research out there that says, no, that's not the case. So uh, an example being, I know a lot of people will say, well, the reason why Congress is so polarized is because of gerrymandering. And there are, you know, there are papers that suggest it's actually much more complicated than that. It's not really just gerrymandering. I mean, there are other things out there that you see, uh, or at least that early on were big misconceptions where you said, no, 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 everybody's got this wrong. I've got to write about this so that I can sort of get the real story out there.
1: I mean, one of the earliest ones was the perception that you can take the the number of people who say that they're politically independent at face value, and and this thinking that the independents really were the plurality group in the American electorate. And one of the things I pushed back on was all was all the evidence, you know, saying that lots of independents are in some sense closet partisans. They're just not exactly eager to tell survey interviewers that they identify with or lean towards a particular political party. And I think we've made some progress on that front. Um, I think we've made some progress, at least in in terms of making people more cognizant about casual narratives about what matters and doesn't matter in campaigns. Um, There's a lot of, of punditry and sometimes reporting where there are, I think, fairly strikingly strong statements about the potential causal effect of uh, something (laughs) happening in the campaign. And we tend to think that we have to be more careful and have, I think, more conclusive evidence. And then one last thing, which is probably even broader, I think the political science community um, tends to see that presidents are limited in their powers, that presidents exist in a broader political system. And that puts constraints on what they can do. But a lot of, of reporting about politics really elevates the president, makes the president seemingly the most powerful person capable of doing all kinds of things if, if only the president would, would try. And, I, and political science takes, I think, a more circumscribed view.
2: So let's talk about some of the findings from some of the research in your latest book, The Science of Trump, which is a collection of uh, monkey cage blog pieces. And There are a few things that – and some of them actually predate the book. One of them that we've cited a few times on the show is this – causal relationship that people give let's go back start with 2012 before we get to trump right that the priorities usa advertising the super PAC that supported president obama that the advertising that happened in the summer defined Mitt romney and he was never able to recover because it was all baked in the cake and defined uh by the organization through early advertising and you did a piece that suggested that 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 seemed not to be true what's your take can you talk about that a little bit
1: yeah, I think there are two problems with that story about the 2012 election. Um, one is it tends to exaggerate the the impact of political advertising, and in particular, it suggests that the impact of political advertising is really long-lasting and durable. Um, most of the research on the duration of political advertising's impact, including our work on 2012, shows that the effect is fairly short-lived. It, it might be gone within a few days or a week, and so, you know, ads that prior to USA's Priorities USA was running in the, in the summer of 2012 are just not likely to really penetrate and, and persist for months on end such that the outcome in November really was baked in the cake in July. The other challenge, at least in our research in 2012, is that we just didn't really find much evidence that the views of Romney shifted in the ways that you would think if those ads had been effective. You know, those ads attacked him for... Um, for the, the, the practices um, of, of bank Capital in terms of closing factories or hurting workers. And meanwhile, we were asking people all along, you know, how much they thought Romney cared about the wealthy, cared about the middle class, cared about the poor, cared about people like you. And we did find there were consistent differences in how people saw Romney and Obama They were more likely to think that Romney cared about the wealthy than the middle class. But those differences were were present in January of 2012, and and they really didn't change the whole duration of the campaign, including after the Priorities USA attacks, including after Romney's comments on the 47 percent. So, again, I just don't think that there was – I've never seen really good evidence that, that those ads actually changed people's minds in a way that was consequential for the outcome of the election.
0: Uh, and this was uh, the sort of research that, you know, we just talked about science of Trump, but you also had a book that came out right after the 2012 election called The Gamble uh, that, that dug into a lot of this. One thing that I think would be really relevant to our listeners, given that we focus so much on on polling and what the polls say and methodology, is the way that you conducted your research for that book. And you know, my I believe what you did was you all t- used a panel, right, where you had a, a, a pool of people that you chose at the beginning and sort of followed that same group of people throughout the election uh, as a way to not just track, you know, sampling different pools of people and seeing if those different pools uh, were varying, but rather a consistent set of voters and how those attitudes fluctuated. Can you tell us a little bit more about why you chose to go with that methodology or um, sort of how that wound up working?
1: Sure. So the design is the technical term for it is a a rolling re-interview. So we started in December of 2011 Um, partnering with uh, the firm YouGov, and they interviewed uh, about 45,000 people in December, um, a very large um, nationally representative cross-section of people. And then beginning in January, for the 45 weeks um, from January up until Election Day, they re-interviewed a random 1,000 of those initial 45,000. So there's, I think and then at the end of the election, after the uh, after people voted, we, we were able to re-interview, I think, about thirty five thousand of the original forty five thousand just with a short interview asking them how they had voted. So the advantage of that, I think, is twofold. One is that you've got, of course, you know, a weekly survey in the field that can give you a sense of what is happening and what's changing in reaction to the events of the campaign. But I think for my purposes, uh, the more important thing was having this original interview relatively early in the campaign in December 2011. Uh, one of the challenges for for a lot of political polling is it's just one cross-section at one point in time. And so you ask people a set of questions about the candidates, but it's very unclear, you know, what's the chicken and what's the egg. With the panel survey, you have a, a measure of what respondents thought relatively early, and you can measure changes Uh, within those respondents themselves. And in some sense, that really helps you sort out, you know, kind of what comes first. Did did people um, come to vote for a candidate because they had a certain position on an issue? Or did people come to vote for that candidate and then change their position on the issue to match the position of the candidates? You know, these are the questions that the panel data can help us sort out. Uh, And I think in in 2016, we're continuing to do the same thing. We have a six wave panel um, in progress with the folks uh, who run uh, Rand's presidential uh, election panel study. And I just feel like that's going to give us a lot more leverage on the crucial causal questions than you can get with traditional Poland.
2: So let's talk a little bit about 2016. It seems like Social science academics are just having a field day talking about Trump. There is constantly uh, discussion over uh, what the data are showing about why people are voting for Trump, trying to understand
0: what's going on behind Trump support. It's not economic anxiety. It's all racism and white nationalism. Right. right. No, no, no. It's all about whether you're economically ex- – right dis- disenfranchised or no, your no, longevity no. It, or yeah, your well-being how long, do, how long do people in your community live no 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 it's about do you have strong social ties or not i feel no 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 it's about are you authoritarian <laughs> or not people who are authoritarian like trump it's right like there's a new headline every couple of weeks like no a new paper shows that actually it's whether people like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that determines if they like trump i mean what do you make of all of that what do you make of the science behind why people have gravitated toward Trump and why we have this kind of crazy political moment?
1: Well, I think that what's made Trump interesting um, is twofold. Um, one is that he doesn't fit into standard Republican Party politics, into uh, standard orthodox conservatism. Uh, his position's on the issue.
0: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I had to put my partisan hat on for like half a second.
1: Okay, (laughs) right. his his positions on issues, you know, don't really align with um, a lot of what has been traditionally true of Republican leaders. Um, So that gives us some interesting leverage um, that we don't often have. And then I think the second thing is that that Trump's way of talking about issues related to race and ethnicity, um, you know, issues like crime or immigration um, has been unusually explicit uh, and controversial relative to other candidates. And, you know, that's given us an opportunity then to really try to understand the impact of people's own views about race and immigration and minority groups and how they they impact Trump. You know, thus far, I don't think we have a, a conclusive story about how to weigh the different potential ingredients in people's support for Trump. Um, Our research and the research of others who've written for the monkey cage certainly shows that views about race and ethnicity are crucial to that story. Um, And in particular, uh, my my co-author, Michael Tesler, has shown that views of race were more strongly associated with views of Trump than with views of McCain or views of Romney. Um, So, I mean, Trump really is unusual. He looks more like Pat Buchanan than he does um, someone like Romney or McCain
2: you And one of your and one of the papers in the book you wrote about um, or one of your co-authors about how Republicans are not necessarily as hardline conservative on some issues as maybe Republican leaders and Republican mm-hmm. policies are. Do you think that's part of Trump's appeal, too, that he's more fluid on some things that perhaps voters are also more fluid on?
1: I think that, that Trump has revealed Um, Something that is true of American voters more generally, but especially true of Republicans, which is that they're not ideologues. Um, They're not orthodox when it comes to kind of conventional liberalism or conventional conservatism. And and within the Republican Party in particular, it's been true for a very, very long time um, that people who are Republicans or conservatives sort of use those labels. But in fact, if you ask their in their policy attitudes, they oftentimes reveal themselves to be less conservative or in fact, somewhat liberal, in particular on issues related to, um, you know, whether we should spend money on different kinds of government programs and government programs that are relatively popular. Keep education.
0: your government hands off my Medicare. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> right.
1: those are the ones. And so, you know, when Trump gets out there and basically says, I'm not going to touch Social Security and Medicare, you know, he's embracing social programs that I think are relatively popular, including among Republicans. And and it really contrasts sharply, I think, with, for example, what Republican leaders like Paul Ryan have advocated doing in recent years. And so this is, I think, the essence of Trump's kind of populist appeal, on the one hand, sort of endorsing certain aspects of the American welfare state, but on the other hand, uh, being quite critical of immigration and immigrants, and I think the combination of those two things is really what's made him distinctive relative to most American politicians, including most Republicans.
2: So uh, there was a story in Politico several months ago about how authoritarianism uh, was the biggest predictor of Trump support, which people not really reading the story thought, oh, authoritarianism, it must mean if, you know, you're favorable toward Mussolini and Franco. And then you also like Trump. It was a little bit more nuanced about like behavior. Right, exactly. But. But then you and that was one of the most popular things we ever put on Facebook. That wasn't about Triumph, the insult comic dog or Frank Lunds. Um, so <laughs> so but you debunked that, too. So can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, I don't I, I could be persuaded that that authoritarianism it has some correlation with support for Trump. Um, I mean, there's reasonable uh plausible reasons for that to be the case. I think the challenge with the with the published research that I've seen is that you you don't have um a real strong sense of the relative weight of authoritarianism against other kinds of uh predispositions or values that people have, particularly with regard to race and ethnicity. I mean, is it really just authoritarianism or is it the fact that, you know, authoritarians are you know, less favorable towards certain minority groups. And that's really the crucial thing that's, that's driving uh, support for Trump. And the other thing that that didn't always emerge in some of the more prominent um, pieces on this subject is what about the other Republican candidates in the primary? And the, and the piece that we had on the monkey cage did something I don't think anybody else did, which is it, it actually looked at Cruz supporters and, and Rubio supporters. And it turns out that among both of those groups, Um, authoritarianism was about as high or even higher in the case of Cruz than it was among Trump supporters. And so what was distinctive about Trump supporters really wasn't authoritarianism, at least when you compare them to the other Republican candidates.
0: Yeah, I think I've loved all of these different stories that have sort of put forward theories, but then, you know, criticize them in part because I like the idea that we do not just have a unified theory of Trump, right, that there's not just one This is the reason why people like Trump or don't like Trump. I mean, it feels like it makes much more sense to say there are a lot of different doors through which one may walk to enter uh, Trump Tower. Enter Trump Tower. And, you know, a big one might be the I don't like pushing one for English door, Um, but there might be people that just – want to blow everything up and there might be people that just want to protect their Medicare. And so I've, I've, I've loved the the way the
2: reluctant, you know, reluctant Republican Trump support. Right. And,
0: and so I've really liked the way that political science allows us to effectively assess the validity or uh, of all of these, you know, single unified theory of Trump claims that sometimes are, are easily floated out there by, by pundits.
1: Well, I think that's, to me, the, one of the big benefits of having the political science community more engaged with a broader public and with political observers during campaign season is that, um, I mean, I think if, if we're doing our job correctly, we really are using the academic tools to the best of our ability to answer you know, the important questions. And certainly that's what Michael Tesler and Lynn Vaverick and I are trying to do right now with a forthcoming book on, on the 2016 election. Um, And again, I think everyone alike wants to get the story right, uh, reporters and and political scientists included. But I think that we're just trying to get the the unique skills of political science brought to bear on on these questions so that the narrative of a campaign is not simply, you know, constructed by uh, by cable news pundits and things like that. Those
2: stupid cable news pundits. They don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) 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 So uh, now. You would think that if there, if this had been a non-Trump year, that having the first woman candidate would lead to lots of studies about women candidates. There was one that we spoke about that Fairleigh Dickinson University did. It was just of folks in New Jersey that showed um, that if you primed respondents with a question that asked them about their own personal relationship to changing gender roles, men in particular were more likely to vote for Trump than if you didn't prime them, that that priming itself made men more likely to, to support the male candidate. I, I haven't seen too much monkey cage Work on gender. I saw one this week or this recent week about how Clinton's language has become more masculine over time, using different kinds of words. Um, but why do you think, or maybe is there more stuff in the works? Why haven't there, why haven't we seen more studies exploring the role of gender uh, vis-a-vis Clinton's candidacy?
1: Well, I think that I think you will see those studies. Um, maybe what's happened uh, over the last several months is simply that the stories related to Trump himself have kind of crowded out other things and an election that we thought would be a lot about Clinton's gender has instead become mostly about whatever controversial thing Trump said today. Um, I think that one of the things that political science brings to bear, and this has been in a couple of different monkey cage posts, is just, um, the evidence about the the role of gender or any potential bias that female candidates experience is sort of more equivocal than I think some of the conventional stories would imply. Um, I did an interview uh, on the monkey cage uh, a month or so ago with a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee named Kathleen Dolan, and she has a new book out about the role of gender in elections. And her view is that Um, To some extent, these gender stereotypes that have to do with female candidates have become less pernicious um, and, moreover, are oftentimes superseded by the sheer force of partisanship. And so that's where I would I want to be careful thinking about the role of of Clinton's gender in particular, especially in a presidential election um, where voters have lots of other information to draw on and in particular Strong partisan allegiances to fall back on. So the real question for me going forward is, can we can we identify a measurable impact of Clinton's gender or people's attitudes about gender on their vote? Or is that stuff going to get superseded to some extent? by this sort of sheer kinds of Democrat versus Republican dynamics or by other things having to do with Trump himself.
0: Well, and the other thing that's a challenge is it's kind of, I mean, this is all, this is a moving target. I mean, this is still ongoing. It is still unfolding. And I, I think I saw last week that there are some journals that are now going to begin. So one of the things that's always been a frustration for me about academia is, you know, you write a paper, you've got to go through peer review, you know, all of this stuff takes a while, and by the time your paper gets published about that incredible thing you learned from the Republican midterms, we're already way into Trump season, and so, you know, who cares about what happened in the midterms? It's I've, not I've,
2: Twitter speed. No, but, I,
0: but I've heard – I think I saw last week that some journals are now going to be doing sort of like pre-acceptance, like instead of, you know, submit to us once you've got your results, that you can submit and say, hey, I'm doing – this is the project that's ongoing now I'm interested in studying this question. Here, are my hypotheses, Here's my plan. But you don't actually have the results yet. But they've sort of pre-accepted you into the journal to expedite the process. John, did am, am I reporting on this correctly? Is this something that you've heard, or is this just like a thing I saw on Twitter that I'm now this glorious negling? dream you had? <laughs>
1: in fact, it's true.
0: Oh, wonderful! <laughs> Maybe so, everything you do read on the internet is accurate.
1: <laughs> so I think the, the, the goal of that. I, you know, it it will be interesting to see if it accelerates the process. Um, but the, the overriding goal of that is actually somewhat different, um, which is to avoid another pathology of academic publishing, which is that, you know, when you get kind of results where, you know, the thing that you thought would happen, didn't happen, um, people won't, submit that for publication because they're disappointed by the outcome or if they do submit it for publication it won't get accepted because people aren't impressed when you show that something didn't matter they want to see what did matter and so you get so sometimes the published literature is a towards showing you effects of something and in fact in reality maybe the actual effect is smaller so if you if you pre-accept something if i say look i'm going to do a survey And I'm going to I'm going to measure these things and I'm going to run the analysis just like this. And if you think that's a good plan, then you should accept that plan and publish the results no matter what I find. So that's the goal of this pre acceptance initiative that's going on, for example, around the 2016 American National Election Study, which is the big political science election uh, survey. Um, And so the hope is, I think the value of this you could imagine, like is. Um, It takes a question like, what is the role of people's gender attitudes in their vote for Clinton versus Trump? Um, It it means that you can perhaps publish an analysis that helps to speak to that question, regardless of whether you find that gender matters or it doesn't matter. As long as the plan for the analysis seems sound as social science methodology, um, then then it can be accepted.
0: My hope is that
1: that produces better research.
0: Yeah, well, and we've – you know, there's a story that that just came out this past week about how even in – not in the academic world but just in terms of polls, that it's the more dramatic polling results that always wind up getting more attention whereas if the bulk of polls all kind of say the same thing and it's pretty boring and the race doesn't change, nobody pays attention to it. So there's an incentive. I mean in polling, you have hurting, which is the incentive going the other way where people don't want to diverge from the norm. They don't want to be the one that's way out on a limb. But if you're fighting for sort of pressure real estate in an academic journal having a paper that says, well, we did this whole research study, and what we found is... Gender doesn't we matter. We don't really know. It's party only matters, <laughs> it's right. It's not, you know, no, not that really big of that big of a deal. That's this certainly less why... exciting than we've discovered that the secret to Trump's success is whether or not you prefer diet soda <laughs> or full-calorie soda. <laughs> right. This is why
2: you need to publish the polls, all of them.
0: <laughs> not just some of them. <laughs> says who? Right. John, thank you so much for joining us. Where, if people want to find uh, your writing, your work, where can they find you?
1: Um, you can find the Monkey Cage living at the Washington Post. Um, a simple Google search for the Monkey Cage will pop it up for you. Um, we're on Twitter, um, and the handle there is at Monkey Cage Blog, um, and 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 find us on on Facebook as well. Um, we're sitting there. Um, I think easily findable if you if you go looking.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you for doing your part to make make monkeys in political science. Great again.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much, guys, for having me.
0: Thank you, John. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you again.